Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Bob, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. How are you doing? Andrea, I'm doing great. I, I love talking about my story. I mean, who doesn't love talking about themselves? But uh, <laughs> hopefully we can add some value and, and some people can enjoy, uh, you know, what some of the things that I've learned in, in my journey. All right. So I, first of all, I know they will because I know a little bit about you, but uh, take us back to the the very beginning at the time of this recording. We're in early 2023. So when did cancer appear in your life? It appeared in my life in 2001, 2001. And if I can do some quick math here, I believe it was the 6th. It was September 6th of 2001 when I was diagnosed. And so it, it actually, it was in my life before that. I just didn't know it until, until that point. And I was 18 years old, uh, still a, a kid by all you know, intents and purposes. I mean, technically an adult at 18, I had just moved up to college and uh, I went from being that invincible, at least I thought I was invincible, 18 year old athlete, ready to go to college, conquer the world. And uh, in, in short order, I was uh, kind of given a reality check pretty quick. Where were you going to school? I was going to Hofstra University in Long Island, New York. And I grew up mostly in South Florida. I was actually born in, up there in New York, but moved to Florida when I was just three years old. So I'm pretty much a Floridian all of my life, except for those first three years. And then uh, the few that I was up at college that we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into here. Yeah. So you had just started school. Mm -hmm. What symptoms did you have that led up to that diagnosis? And you alluded to the fact that you had been sick for a while and didn't know it. Yeah. So I, school hadn't actually started yet. I, I did oh, end wow. up taking classes during all of what happened, but school hadn't gone, hadn't actually started yet. I was up there in training camp playing football and I was a freshman and trying to prove myself to my coaches. And I thought I, I as I said, I, I thought I was invincible in, in, in one sense, but also thought I really had to get up there and, and, and prove myself. And so I, I had gone up there and it was probably the third or fourth day of training camp. And, and our college training camp is way different than high school. Uh, you, you know, you're there for a month. So it, it's pretty intense. And it, it's really a good opportunity to get to know some people before the school year even starts. But in my third or fourth day of training camp, I thought I had pulled a groin muscle. And I don't know if, if anyone's ever pulled a groin muscle out there, but it's actually one of the most debilitating injuries that you can have. I mean, it's hard to sit, walk, twist, turn, lay down. I mean, it's actually very, very uh, painful and, and really annoying, to be honest with you. You don't realize how much you use that muscle. And so over a series, a period of uh, a week or so, I was doing what I thought were these rehab exercises for this groin injury. And the training room at at Hofstra there on any given morning uh, before training camp might have a hundred people running around and you know, doctors, wow. trainers, team coaches, people just, it's crazy in the morning. And, and this rehab exercise or one of the exercises that I had to do was I would sit on this three wheeled stool 
and I would shimmy across the training room. This is a big room. I mean, it's, it's probably, you know, 50 feet long, at least, if not longer. I just got instant visual. And, <laughs> yeah. And I'm dodging people. You know, that's like part of the exercise. The trainers are like, yeah, just get you. You work your way from one end of the room to the other. And that's your rehab. Actually, I guess it was supposed to stretch my hips and strengthen that area. And I was doing it for like a week. And I'm like, this is not getting any better. It's, it's probably getting harder, to be honest with you. And our trainer, his name was Rick. And he's all of maybe 5'5", five, five, 140 pounds soaking wet. Like, not a big guy. And in order to get everyone's attention on any given morning, he would have to stand on this box in the middle of the training room and, like, scream to people. Like, you know, attention, everyone. Well... I'm not going to exaggerate anything in the story except for maybe this. At least it seemed like it at the time. But this, the one day, it just felt like it got dead silent. And he called me out. He's like, Bobby. And they called me Bobby at the time. Bobby, you got to get back out on the field. Quit being a weakling. <gasps> and I was like, wow, Whoa. that's a shot to my ego. You know, here I am thinking on this invincible 18-year-old trying to prove myself. And he calls me a weakling in front of everyone. And I, I saw him a little bit later. I said, listen, Rick. I mean, I, I want to get back. Believe me, I want to be playing right now. I have to be or else I'm never going to play. I got to, I, I, something's wrong. He goes, all right, well, you know what? I'm going to send you to a doctor. And I remember telling my teammates that I had this meeting with Rick. And they're like, you mean you spoke with Rick like one-on-one? -on -one? Like no one ever talked to this guy. He's <laughs> running around like a maniac. So I was like, oh, something's wrong. So here I am, 18. And then for the next week, just about every day, I was driving around Long Island by myself because I'm up there, you know, as, as technically an adult. And I went to, I mean, I had every test in the book. I mean, how do you name it? A CAT scan, ultrasound, sonogram, everything, MRI, just to see what was wrong. Yeah. And these appointments would take hours. I mean, if any, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who have had these type of exams. You got to go in there. You got to fill out all the medical information, all the paperwork. And I'm 18. I don't even know what medical insurance is at this point. Yeah. I'm answering questions and trying to figure out these things. And by the time I get into the appointment, then I get there, then I get prepped for it. In some cases, you need a you need an IV, you need an injection, and all this other stuff. I mean, I'd be in these appointments for hours. So here we are, and I, I alluded to it earlier. On the 6th of December, 2001, I had to uh, go to one more appointment. And ironically, this was the day that my parents had scheduled to come up for my first ever college game. Wow. And they knew I wasn't playing in the game at this point, but they were still going to come up, visit family. Because remember, I was born up there, like both sides of the family, they're all from New York. So they were going to come visit family, come see me and, and you know, see, see what was going on. And so I remember my mom telling me she was flying, they were flying out that morning and they were going to land. And I would be in this 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 other appointment that I had, and I expected to call them. You know, when I got out, they would have landed already. Maybe even been at my uncle's house where we were going to meet. So I go into the appointment, and I expected to be there for a while. But I mean, within thirty seconds, they call me into the back into the room. I went into the office, and then not but a minute later, the doctor walks in, and I like I said, I was expecting to be there for hours. He sits down at the table and just looks me dead in the eye and says, "All right, Bobby." I got to tell you this, you have cancer. And that was it. And I mean, my jaw hit the desk. I was like, wait, what? I mean, I'm supposed to be this invincible 18-year-old. What's going on here? And he goes, I know you're in shock, uh, but we'll call you shortly and we'll, we'll figure out what we're going to do as far as the treatment. And we're going to get you hooked up with an oncologist. And my thought was, I don't even know what an oncologist <laughs> is. 
right? What, I mean, what does that mean? I was like, I, I can't even spell that. Was this a GP, so, this doctor that gave you the news? Yeah. He okay. Well, no, excuse me. He was a urologist. Oh, okay. Because because Rick, the, the trainer, had sent me to a urologist because of the given my groin injury. He thought maybe something was going on with, you know, with whatever urologist was specialized in. So this is what the urologist tells me. So I walk out of this, the, the office building, and it was like perfect timing. As soon as I walked out of the building, my phone rings. I mean, the moment I walked out of the building and my mom is like, oh, hey, I expected you to be in the appointment. I was going to leave you a message and let you know that we landed. But now that I got you on the phone, how did it go? Oh, oh <laughs> and no. And I was like, about that, mom. Um, so I had to tell her. And over the phone. Over the phone. And it was, it was, I told her what the doctor said and she was dead silent, but she was like, I could just feel her screaming all at the same time. Right. I mean, yeah. it was the eeriest couple seconds of my life. And the only thing that I remember being able to hear was my dad on the other side, because they were in the car together on the other side. And he was saying, Susan, Susan, what's wrong? Like, even he knew something was wrong based on her reaction. Yeah. And so we met back at my uncle's house and we looked at each other. And now I hadn't seen my parents. I had not been alone. I had never been away from home for a month before. I mean, this is the longest I had ever gone without seeing them. And, you know, I gave him a hug and we... we shed some tears and said some prayers. And, you know, we were just sitting there in the, the dining room kitchen area of my uncle's house and kind of looking at each other, like what's going on here. Right. And so, um, the, the following day, my, the, I, we spoke with the oncologist and back to the school thing, he told me, you know, you can't, we're going to figure out a treatment plan. I don't know exactly what we're going to do, but, but you have to still do something with your life. I mean, you can't do nothing while you're being treated over the next months and, so he advised me to still go to class. And this is the key part of the story. Forgive me if I'm getting long-winded here, but um, he told me to go to class. So that was the, that was on Friday. Saturday, my which was supposed to be the day of my first game, my uncle's best friend comes over to the house. And this was, I mean, totally unexpected. I, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a craziness going on in the family, but he came over and he, and he walked up to my parents and he introduced himself and, and said, here, I want you to, he handed him his keys. And he said, I want you to, you all to take my car for as long as you could possibly need it. I can't imagine what you and your son are going through right now, but oh. take my car and, and use it as needed. And he was there for maybe 15 minutes. And he said goodbye to my aunt, said goodbye to my uncle and walked out. And that was it. And never met the guy before. And he gives us his car. Like, Wow what an act of generosity. Like no one's ever done anything like that for our family. So uh, fast forward a couple of days, I used the car on Monday to go to some more uh, doctor's appointments. On Tuesday morning, I had my first ever, my second ever college class. I had one on Monday morning, second one on Tuesday. I came out of this class and I was hungry. So I went to the cafeteria and do you remember like old school, like a tube television in a public place that would hang oh, yeah. in, on the ceiling? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, they used to have the those news in the hospitals. Yeah. Right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the news is on, on this television. It's hanging from the corner of the ceiling and the wall. And I'm up in New York. I don't know the news stations. I don't even watch the news, but I'm, it's on, I'm eating a breakfast burrito and all of a sudden a plane hits one of the twin towers. Yeah. And I was like, Whoa. 
what a horrible accident. So I called my dad and I said, hey, hey, dad, are you watching the news? He's like, yeah, I'm, up, I'm sitting in the living room here and I, I, this is crazy. And all of a sudden we're talking for, you know, less than a minute, bam, the other plane hits the other twin tower. And he's like, well, that's not an accident. You should probably hightail it over back to your uncle's house. So I, I, I ran out of there. The, the, the burrito is probably still sitting on the table. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I got in the car and it was typically a 15 minute drive. And I subsequently, we can get more into this later, but I actually have a broadcast, a uh, master's degree in broadcast journalism. But that 15 minute drive took me nine hours. <gasps> and I listened to the entire thing, the, the September 11th attacks on New York City there in the Twin Towers. Listen. I listened to nine straight hours of oh. AM radio. Oh, God. And that sounds so As much heavy. as I love broadcasting, I will never listen to nine straight hours of AM radio right? ever again in my life. That's so heavy. Oh, my God. It was incredible. And I'm watching, you know, I'm driving in New York, burning towers in the distance, listening to this. Got to my uncle's neighborhood and ran out of gas. So I had to push my car into his driveway. And I, I pushed the, we pushed the car into the driveway, you know, a, a few of us. And we looked at each other and like, this is crazy. I mean, what's going on? I, I thought life was good. I'm going off to college and all of a sudden, I don't know if my life's over. And now a few days later, I'm like, I don't even know if the world, the world right. might be coming to you. Yeah. Now at this point, did you know what kind of cancer you had? No, I, we, we, we still weren't exactly sure what oh was God. going on. So, <laughs> um, so we get into, I go into the house and my aunt is frantic because my uncle was on business the night before and she's, he was supposed to fly into New York that morning. Oh God. And we're like, oh, this is crazy. So finally, it's maybe eight o'clock at night. He calls and he says, I'm really sorry. I've been trying to get a hold of you guys. The phones have been out. I'm stuck in Denver. I couldn't make it home. Obviously, the planes were grounded. I'll try to catch a flight tomorrow, but I'm okay. And we're like all relieved. And, we're, and my aunt was going to hang up the phone. And he's like, but wait, I got to tell you something. My best friend, Tim, who you all just met a few days ago, he was in the towers this morning and he, and he passed away. Oh my gosh. And it hit us like oh. unbelievable. Like we just met this guy, and oh gosh, I just the, got the, the reason why I tell the story is because you know it's directly related to the whole situation with my cancer and everything that went right. on. But he worked for Cannon Fitzgerald, which is an investment bank, oh, and they were yeah. known for being very, very generous people. And, and they got, Tim himself was also very generous, and it, and, and they got and the just, fact that his last real act of generosity yeah. was for us and it happened a few days before that. And so well, and they lost I always try everybody to in their New York office, just about, I mean, yeah, they lost everyone yeah. and they would give office space for free to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis, which is another terrible disease. My cousin has it and they donated office space. And luckily no one from the foundation was in that morning that no one was typically there that early, except yeah. for Tammy who was uncharacteristically late that morning, got stuck in the subway and ended up escaping. But the stories that she can tell are unbelievable. So anyway, that time of my life was crazy. Obviously I had a physical ailment, but mentally and emotionally it was very, very uh, turbulent for me as well. So at what point did you actually even know what kind of cancer you had? Let's see. So that was Tuesday that 9-11 happened. Um, later that week, I, my doctor, the, the doctor called us because Tuesday obviously was crazy. I, I don't think Wednesday we, we spoke with anyone. It must have been later that week that I, 
he called and, and officially told me like what, what I, what it was. And he talked about all the details. Most of the stuff went over my head. The only thing I remember him telling me was that this is a highly aggressive form of cancer. And based on your scans, it's already up in your abdomen. So it's gone from your, you know, your testicles to your abdomen. So was I had it testicular, testicular cancer. cancer? Okay. It was okay. And it's extremely aggressive, but it's also highly curable. Okay. So I have an aggressive treatment plan. We're going to get started as soon as possible. But the one, the one other thing that left that I had to do is he wanted me to do some sperm banking because he knew how, you know, what that would do, what the treatment and the type of cancer would do for me and fertility. So, right. but we pretty much got on it it's pretty quickly. But the problem was, is I had to go into New York city oh, God. and public transportation was down and yeah. I have some other stories about that. Some are funny, some are emotional, but it was quite a turbulent time right there. And I, and I, I ended up staying in New York to get treated by this doctor who happened to be the father of one of my cousin's best friends. So that things were really working in my favor there as well, that I was able to get in with this doctor during this, during this time, right after nine 11. So what was that like staying in the city in the aftermath of nine 11 and beginning treatment? Well, my family's house and Hofstra university are on long Island. Right. So, I did have to go into the city that following week and being in the city, I mean, it was just, and I was 18, I had been to New York before, but I really didn't understand it that much. But I do remember the streets being barren, yeah. no one being out, smoke in the sky, obviously from, from ground zero there. Transportation was very, very hard to come by. Only there's very, very, very limited subway stops. So getting around and going to the different places that I had to go, we, I, at one point, I talk about the sperm making, at one point we had to go from one hospital in uh, downtown to another one all the way uptown. And we had to walk miles and miles and miles to get there. And it was starting to get wow. cold and, and my parents were with me. It was, it was a really crazy time. And I think in some cases it was good that it was such a blur and I was kind of young and innocent. You know, otherwise, I think it really could have gotten to me mentally of all that we had to do during that period of time. Yeah. What what kind of treatment? You mentioned that the oncologist said it was going to be aggressive. So what was the treatment exactly? So I had to have surgery first um, to remove to remove the source, uh, the source that they call it an orchiectomy. Um, I didn't even know that at the time either. I've, I've learned more about testicular cancer and cancer in general since then. But um, I had to have surgery first. And then the doctor said, and he, you know, he looked at it and he, and he said, you know, we can do potential radiation on, on these couple spots that I can really see that are kind of big, but I'm assuming based on the type it is that we're going to miss spots if we try to do spot treatment. So he just, we did chemo. So what I did was I didn't have any radiation. It was all chemo surgery and then chemo. And then I had to have, I would do a full week of chemo. And I know treatments are different these days and different cancers. But even back then, as I understand it, like most of his patients wouldn't get drugs every day, you know, for five straight days. So I went in, I would do it chemo for five straight days. And then subsequently inpatient? after that, I'm sorry, inpatient. Uh, no. So it, I, I, I would sleep at my uncle's house, but I would go in early in the morning to his office there. Okay. And I would be there probably, I don't know, nine or so in the morning till 
late afternoon and okay. I would have treatment all day and then they would patch me up and then I would go home and come back and do it again the next day, go home, go back to my uncle's and right. sleep and come right back. So no, it was, it was outpatient, but, uh, at the time his office was not equipped for, it was very, very, I mean, if he wasn't my cousin's friend's father, <laughs> I likely wouldn't have been able to be treated. And there wasn't even enough room in their treatment room. They probably, he could probably fit, you know, 10, 20 tops maybe in the room where everyone would be treated in this, in his office. So there was like a side room. And I think this was partially a psychological thing for me as well. Most of the people that he were, he was treating were, you know, older, right? Uh, probably mostly elderly. So they put me in my own room. I had a TV and I, I think it was a little, a little bit more for my spirits than anything. Right. Um, so I would go for five straight days and then it, and then I would have to do Neupogen shots for my white blood cell count. I, I, I'm sure the drugs are a little bit different now, how they administer these, but I had to give myself shots. I had for... to give my sister those shots. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to give myself shots every day uh, for, I think it was 12 days after that. And I tell you, by, I have some stories about this. By the end of, I, I had, I did this four times. So I had four full weeks of chemo, so 20 rounds with a, with a, with a week, a couple, a couple week break in between. And by the end of that time, so I had, if, if my math is correct, I gave myself 48 Neupogen shots. By the time I got to 25, 30 towards the end, it was the leather, the skin on my thighs was like leather. It's a, the body's amazingly adaptive on how it got used to me jabbing those right. needles. You have to pick thigh. new spots. Yeah. Yeah, I did, but I, I, I think I was so used to doing it the one way that I, I don't know. I just like I couldn't change, even though the doctor probably advised. But anyway, so I had to give myself these shots, and I'll never forget that last one. I mean, I could not get it in. I, I was jabbing it into my thigh. This is graphic, but I mean, I was trying to jab it into my thigh, and I couldn't. And those and are small needles thigh. for people who don't know. Like they're fairly small needles for Neupogen. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I, you know, it couldn't have been more than a couple inches long. It wasn't yeah. huge. And they're it thin. Was bigger than a small, small syringe, but it's not, you know, like Novocaine at the dentist. But the, I'll never forget this. My mom, you know, she pretty much, she, she pretty much lived with me. You know, thankfully she worked for her friends at the time and was able to take time off slash maybe do some remote work. And which is way different now than it was back then. Not the type of remote work you think, but right. she... I never forget she would be in there trying to help me and you know has has the the hazardous materials box and you right. know the, the salt, whatever exactly she got all that for me and i was like i can't get this thing and i said mom you just need to leave the room <laughs> i was like mom just get out of here and so she leaves and i did this and i this was this is not advised you know i probably shouldn't have done this but i gave out i did i let out this like primal scream and just jumped in the air and did this flying like and smashed that thing into my thigh I got it in there, hit this, you know, did the plunge with the other hand, which I wouldn't recommend either. Right. And then ripped the thing out of my leg and, and I launched it up against the, <laughs> the wall. I threw it. And my mom's outside. She's like, what's going on? Are you okay? <laughs> and um, anyway, she came in and, and I was like, mom, it's okay. I got it in. We're good. And that was my last ever shot. I'll never forget that. But I had to do that afterwards. So yeah, I had 20 rounds. And so it took 20 rounds and... Each round was five full days and 20, oh, 20 days. So 
So four four times I did a, a full week of keynote, Got it. so okay. twenty days total, and that was two weeks in between. So it was you know November, late November when I when I finished. So what side effects did you experience from the chemo, if any? Oh, pl plenty of side effects. Uh, number number one, I mean, I, I lost all my hair, uh, which is ironic because I had been had a kind of a longer hairdo for a while. Uh, and so you, you may not, it may not be as uh, profound as you may think, but yeah, I lost all the hair on my head. Uh, everywhere else, interestingly enough, and I don't know if they've, they you can didn't. even explain this, but you know, hair in my arms, my legs, everywhere else was fine, but I, I lost all the hair on my head. And there's a couple other things. Um, one specifically is the, and this is still affects me to this day. It's not a major complaint, but it's kind of interesting. My, specifically my fingers, but my, my toes, the nerve endings in, in the end of my extremities are very, very sensitive. And so cold weather, I don't do well with cold weather at all. Um, I have trouble sticking my hand into a freezer and I want to pull stuff out. My, my fingers turn purple very, very quickly. I deal with that. Um, and then the other thing is now we don't actually know that is pretty much proven was as a result of maybe that, um, we don't really know this other thing that bothers me, but I've been having digestive issues uh, and there's really no explanation for it. I've had all the tests in the book that you might think typical things, but I, I think there's some kind of autoimmune or uh, enzymatic issue that uh, I struggle with a little bit digestively. So I take enzymes. Um, I have to be very careful. I have a pretty strange diet. And so I'm still kind of dealing with this, uh, with that these days. And then one other thing, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier is, is infertility. So my, my right. wife and I have been un, unable to have kids. Um, and unfortunately, even the sperm banking, uh, didn't work out. Uh, we, we tried to do in vitro and that didn't work either. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just part of our life. I mean, we're heavily involved with young people. We just don't have any kids of our own. And we, we may adopt someday. So those are the, those are the main things that, that, uh, I felt since, since my treatment. Bob, what was your worst moment in all of it? Well, the that was a pretty bad moment when I couldn't get the syringe into my leg, but that was more frustration. Um, and so I think we've all been frustrated at times. So I, I, I won't say that. What, I, what I'll say is there, I always, I always tell people this, physically, my treatment lasted, like I said, four months or so. Right. Um, mentally, it took me, I don't know, maybe a year or so, six months maybe to kind of just get back on track with being a college student and get back. And I ended up going back to play sports again, which was great. But I think emotionally it took me years yeah. to, to get over this. And I'll never forget, I had a bit of the, I don't know if you want to call it survivor's guilt or, you know, why me type of thoughts. But a couple of years later, I'll never forget kind of having this breakdown type of moment and never really... I was never afraid to talk about what happened to me, but after that time happened and I was physically healed, I jumped right back into full load of classwork, playing football and lacrosse in college. I mean, being a million miles an hour up early in the morning, homework, you know, I didn't really have time to think about everything and it took a couple of years. So I think my, the hardest time for me was when I was a, I was a junior in college. And I remember one specific day specifically, but there was probably a period of a few months where that were really, really tough for me. 
emotionally because I was thinking to myself, all right, um, you know, all of the things that happened in my life that truly saved my life. And I, and there's a whole bunch of them. We talked about Tim and giving us the car. We talked about the oncologist. Um, there's a couple other things that happened there that I just, I can't, I can not even explain how I was able to get into the doctors that I did, the treatment, the timing, the fact that I ended up being in New York, um, all of these different things that timed out well. And I, I just was really questioning like what I did to deserve all of that stuff that worked out well for me because I knew a lot of people in my family uh, and around me that things did not work out for them and yeah. uh, may they rest in peace. They're not with us anymore. And so I had a bit of that and trying to figure out, I felt some kind of calling to do something good with what I had, but I didn't know what it was yet. I, I, I'm there now. I, I'm in a much better mental space now or emotional space, but I was really worried that all of that experience that I had would have went to waste. And it hit me like a ton of bricks when I was a junior. So wow. it's a couple of years after, after all that happened. What about your best moment? I kind of have, kind of have two, but one of them is more, um, wasn't directly, one of them is more a, a realization. And I'm more That's than okay. willing to share that story. Yeah, no, I, I love it. That's why I love asking okay. these questions because it's not, I think, what most people expect the worst okay. or the best moment. So yeah, tell us. Okay, so I'll, gi I'll give you both of them. So the, the one, and, and I can tell them pretty quickly. The one that really was my best moment directly related to the illness and everything was uh, we were married, my wife and I were married at this point. Um, she, I think this might've been only the second time she had ever gone up to New York with me. Now I have my periodic check-ins after, afterwards. Well, it's 10 years later now, so it was, it was in 2011, I went to see my doctor and it's the first time he ever said these words to me because I, I would get a scan, I would get all the blood work done and then I would go visit him. And he looked, he came into the office and no, really no discussion at all. It was very similar to the abruptness of when I was diagnosed. He looked at me and he said, and he said, Bobby, you're cured. And wow. They almost never say those words. Yeah, they never say those words but it was 10 years later and my wife was with me and it was like, I didn't realize the weight that I had been carrying for that long. Um, a lot of people in my life may not realize this, but I'm a pretty nervous, high strung guy. Like I'm loose and fun, love to goof off. I love to talk, you know, address crowds. And I just, I love that. But I really, in my own mind, in my own quiet moments, I'm a very, you know, I'm an anxious person, to be honest with you. And I don't think I even realized it. So when he said that, and then we were in the car and we're back, we we're back in New York. So we weren't driving home to my house. In fact, I think we were driving back to my uncle's house again uh, that I was talking about earlier. And she, and she even said to me, she goes, wow, you look like a completely different person. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was, that was pretty powerful. That, that moment right there. And what was the other one you mentioned? And the other one. Okay. So this one, this one blew my mind. So I mentioned my wife. Um, we met when I was, well, technically we met a couple of years. I was, I had graduated college. So, so my wife and I are involved in a, in a mission organization for high school and college students. And, and we still participate this day. We love it. And uh, we were on the same trip one year. And uh, we had, this is the first time we've ever done this together. And we, 
a group of us became really good friends. Like we had all just met. It was like, you know, typically you, you develop these relationships with people, but specifically five of us were really close. And so after the trip was over, we all went our separate ways. My wife's from Michigan. I'm from Florida. She was actually in college in Chicago. And we had a friend from California, another one from somewhere outside of Illinois, and then another one from Carolina. So like we would just keep in touch really closely. And so over a period of time, um, my wife and I started to develop this relationship and we, at a certain point, we decided that, you know, we're going to date each other long distance. And so we would have these conversations, uh, till late, late in the evening. And in fact, that one of the funny, the funny part of it is one time my wife went to get a, a new phone or something and she was at the Verizon store and the guy looked at her minutes. And I, I don't know if you remember back then, but after 9 PM cell phone minutes were free, what, like. Fifteen oh God, years I, ago, whenever that I don't was now. remember that. Wow. Okay. So he like he like made this crazy face, and her mom was like, "Well, what what's wrong?" Like she was expecting like maybe there was like some thousand dollar bill for her phone. He's like, "No, it's all free minutes." But this is the most minutes I've ever seen someone talk on the phone in my entire life. <laughs> so we would spend a lot of time communicating, and that's why we developed our relationship. So eventually, we decided uh, that there was something more than just friendship, right? So one of these days, and we were getting pretty serious at this point. So this is, you know, well down the road, uh, but I wanted to give you the backstory. We were having this conversation about a little bit more deeper about what our college and high school like experience was like. And my wife was telling me, she, could, she goes, yeah, you know, my, my high school experience was great. I love my, you know, I love my teachers and classmates. You know, I, I, I had such a great time when I was in high school. And she goes, I remember this one teacher specifically and his name was Mr. Zill. He was kind of that goofy teacher that people liked, but it was just, you know, kind of the crazy guy. And he, she said that she was a junior in high school and, the, and he sat in front of the class, like on the first day of class and said, you know, here's your syllabus. Here's what, here's what's going on in the class. Here's the schedule. But one thing that we're going to do is that periodically during the year class, we're going to pray for our future spouses. And like, you're a 16 year old girl. That's a little you're odd like, for sure. You're like, what? Like, I don't even think I, I'm just thinking about picking my nose and getting lunch. And you're talking about you're getting married Well, you're crazy, but they did it though. They went around like, you know, periodically throughout that fall semester of her junior year of high school. And they, and they would pray for their, for their future spouse. And so then we were talking more and we were doing the math. And she's two grade levels behind me. And so that whole time I was going through my treatment and everything that I was going on is the exact time she was a junior in college, high school, and Mr. Zill was having them all pray for their future spouse. Wow. Oh. And when we came to this realization, it was like, yeah. So she didn't even know me, had no idea who I was, never met. It was years until we would even meet each other. And she was supporting me through that whole time. So. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Bob, what's one thing that you wish you had known at the very beginning when you got that news in that doctor's office? I wish I knew that other people would be, could potentially be inspired by what I learned from the scenario. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, there was a couple of year period where it was just kind of a blur for me. And I remember having this conversation with one of the other trainers after this, this whole ordeal happened. And 
I had talked to Rick about this a lot because, you know, he, he saved my life essentially by telling me, Hey, you need to go to the doctor. Did he apologize but, by the way? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, absolutely. But there was another trainer, Matt. I remember having this conversation with Matt and he said to me, he said, Hey, can we, can we talk about a, what about your illness and stuff? And I thought he was just asking questions, whatever, but he actually sat me down, sat me down. We had a pretty important conversation because he was trying to learn a little bit about my symptoms and what could help them maybe help other athletes in the future. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, two, two things that hit me about this. One is it, there's other, there's, there's stuff that can be learned from my experience. And that's kind of when I went through that tough time of how do I, you know, how does what I went through help people? So that's one thing. And then the other thing I should mention is there was another uh, lacrosse player at the, at Hofstra there um, who ended up dying and had a form of cancer as well. Oh, so um, wow. the fact that like it was, it was on their minds there. And so yeah. when Matt had this serious conversation with me, so yeah, I, I, I know now that there's, there there can be some silver lining to a rather dark cloud for that period of time. Yeah. Oh God. I love that. And I think a lot of people can resonate with that. I do. Um, so yeah, I wish I would have known it earlier. I wish, I wish I would have been able to, you know, understand that sooner, but yeah. Well, you were young too. Sure. You know? Yeah, you were. Bob, if you could only do one thing to change healthcare in the U S what would it be and why? I would make it so make it, I don't know if make it's the right word, but I, I, I wish that, I wish that patients could have an easier, better understanding of their options for care. Uh, I know that disease only seems to get more complex and when disease is more complex, the, there's a lot more complexity for research and options and clinical trials. And some people have some terrible diseases that um, don't have access to things that, and it's maybe not because they can't, it's because they don't even realize it. So I've done some, I've, I've interviewed some people. I've spoken with quite a few that are lo looking for programs and systems to help patients uh, know what is available to them because as intelligent as some of the healthcare providers are, um, it's it just like any profession, you, you know, you can focus on your area as much as possible. But if, if someone has a unique case, they may not, their primary provider, and I don't mean their primary physician, I mean, whoever is their leader and their care team may not have all the answers and you can't right. expect them to. So I would, I wish, and there are some applications and some digital technology out there right now that are kind of pioneering in this space. And I'm hoping that they continue to make headway because that's, uh, that's really important. And I, I also see this too. I mentioned my, my cousin who has cystic fibrosis. Um, I've also learned a lot about healthcare and the systems and uh, uh, technology that's out there to try to help help patients understand more about what their options are. So I, I, I have it from my own personal experience and also my family's when it comes to CF, so. Wow. Are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire? Let us do it. This, this is what I've been waiting for. Honestly, this is why I'm here. <laughs> That's why you're here. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll try not to laugh. Sometimes I hold up the Thriver Rapid Fire because I'm laughing too hard, but okay. Okay. Get that out. Here we go. Beach, desert, or mountains? Desert. Ooh, surprising. 
Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. What is one word that best describes you? Generous. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? World Changers by Audio Adrenaline. The last meal you want to eat? Something Italian. The last person or people you want to see? My wife, uh, definitely, as one person. And then the other people would be my friends from Spoke Folk, which is the trip I talked about earlier. And the last words you will speak? I love you. And aside from Cancer U, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I also want you to tell people how they can get in touch with you. Uh, best resource, I would say, would would be the, the, the people, the professionals in your life. I mean, ask as many questions as you possibly can. I mean, you can Google old stuff all day long, but I think if you can talk with a person um, and I would... I, I would go into your appointments, no, like having specific questions. There's nothing wrong with having a list, whether it's on your phone or you print it out or it's on a quill pen, I but agree. go in with the questions, number one. Um, and then people can get in touch with me at bobdepasquale.com is the best place. All my social links are right there and everything I do, podcast, blog, speaking engagements, all right there on the website. Okay, we will make sure that that's all linked up. Bob, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.